0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast, What Makes Them Tip Innovations That Changed Everything, where we hear from business leaders and entrepreneurs about the moment, insight, or inspiration that made everything possible and ultimately pushed them over the tipping point. I'm Mike Strada, founder and CEO of Arcalea, where we inspire business change by introducing data science, formal analytics, and provide implementation for marketing. Moneyball for growth oriented businesses. We say success is now a science. Stay with us, and at the end of the show, we'll share how you can be the next guest on one of the fastest growing podcasts in the industry. And with that, let's get started.
1: Hello and welcome to What Makes Them Tip, Innovations That Changed Everything. I'm Jeff and once again I have the privilege of talking to amazing people truly innovating in their particular entrepreneurial space and we get to hear their stories. Now today's guest has a proven track record of success in leading forward campaigns that drive demand and cultivate sales from conception to success in market and currently serves as the founder and chief executive officer of Fangled Technology. He is Andrew Deutsch. Welcome.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it.
1: Well, we're grateful that you're here. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Fangled Tech does.
2: Yeah, we're actually in the process of, of re- rebranding. The, the, the future name of the company is the Fangled Group. The technology part of it is still a major piece of, of what we do. But at the core, we're, we're a, a global marketing and sales consultancy. Our Our business is taking companies back to building a true strategy before we let them play in that toolbox of all those fun tactical tools, and, okay, and and you know, in doing that, we we support marketing, sales, innovation, and also help companies bring their bring their message and strategy globally. We have affiliates in about 120 countries that we work with.
1: Oh wow, yeah. So you're everywhere, and you've been doing that for how long now? How long has Fangold Tech been a, been a thing? Fang, Fangold Tech and its current and its current naming began in
2: 2014, but we've been doing what we do under other names since about 1993?
1: Oh, okay. Well, tell me a little bit about that about the name. Is there a, is there a meaning behind the Fangled Tech?
2: Yeah, we we originally were under the name of the Deutsch Group when when I moved my offices to to Brazil and we we worked there for many years and came back to the states. Uh, the story that that we the the, the the story I can tell about it is that somebody decided it was important to register our name to try to keep us from being in the market. My the name of the Deutsch Group was registered overseas. Oh, I so, see. So when we decided to reform the company in the States, rather than get into that whole battle, we went through a renaming process, which is what we do with our clients. And, and part of a fun meeting, someone jokingly said, well, now that we're getting a new name, we're we going to be doing that new fangled marketing. And someone else <laughs> says, well, we're not old fangled. And I said, no, we're fangled right in the moment. <laughs> there and, you go. And we laughed and went, huh. And ever since then, it's probably of all the naming we've ever done in terms of name recognition, uh, we're we're a blacksmith that actually knows how to work with metal. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the, I, I've I've met people in 2014. I might bump into them now, and they'll remember fangled.
1: It's, I mean, I wondered fun. if it had something to do with newfangled, and that's one of the reasons I asked. So, I, I think yeah. it, it is pretty clever. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's just you know, a lot of times you're people are so literal in the in the business name, and in reality, you know, something that's newfangled, you're not quite sure. If it's really going to do what it's supposed to do, but it's fancy and shiny and whatever, and old fangled stuff may or may not work, we're right in the moment, looking to the future, and, and
1: helping people grow. So it, it fits. Yeah, no, that's kind of brilliant, actually. Um, well, let's 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 talk about how you became fangled. Then <laughs> let's go back a little ways. Um, so in 1993, you first is when you kind of established and started uh-huh. running your own business. Uh, what were you doing before that?
2: My. I went to school, studied international trade, knew that's what I wanted to do, got my bachelor's degree and went to work uh, with, for a nonprofit, raising money and running a program because mm. I, got, I got to move to Florida for free. <laughs> so I, I was there for a short period of time knowing I wanted to go back to grad school. It wasn't what I wanted to do. But the beauty of working for a nonprofit is you learn how to sell an idea rather than a product. Hmm. And and you you really cut your teeth as a salesperson because in, in reality, what you're asking someone to do is to invest money in an idea in exchange for a handshake and a certificate. Yeah. And the occasional trophy. So it it started to get my mind working in terms of of expanding my even my concept of sales. Well, back in at that time, every MBA I knew was unemployed. So going back to school to get an MBA was to me throwing money in the river. So I went back to school and studied uh, in the area of psychology and decided to use that learning to really build those multicultural marketing strategies that got me interested in the global market anyhow. So I I actually worked as a a therapist for a couple of years while I was developing business clients. And not before long, I I was helping build orientation programs for exchange student programs, met some incredible executive level people in Central America and the next thing I knew, I was involved in these really cool projects. Yeah. So in 93, through a referral, I ended up going down to Brazil for a project for 90 days uh, and ended up living there for 10 years where, where I built my business. Okay. Uh, and really, it, it in the States, I was another guy who would, he was doing. There, it was a virgin market. It had just opened for import. It had been a closed market for so many years. So in Brazil, I was a guy who had expertise in the minds of the consumer. Here I was just another guy, mm. so it got me into doors that I probably didn't deserve to be through yet. Um, but because I was transparent and honest and said, "Look, we're going to learn this together," uh, I was able to build a business. That's great. Yeah.
1: And so, where do, so? Tell me a little bit about like what when you first started in 1993. Um, a lot of times when people are starting a business or entrepreneur, they're trying to solve a problem. What would you say was the problem? You were trying to solve when you started your business.
2: My my whole thing was how do you take an idea to market?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How how do you grow? What what are what are the strategies that you build so that a, a clever idea becomes a business, becomes a profitable business, and and grows? And and I was always fascinated in the industrial space more so than the consumer space, but but that was sort of the the, the idea that didn't really form until I was involved in in what I was doing later in South America. It was all about clever ideas, doing things differently, figuring out ways to solve problems that other people couldn't. And and it's sort of been that creative base of everything that we've done from innovation to new product development over the years.
1: Yeah. Can you give us some examples of ways that you guys kind of maybe do things a little bit different, especially um, ways that you've innovated uh, to kind of set yourselves apart? Sure. Uh, one of the projects
2: that we worked on down, down in uh, South America was uh, equipment for painting uh, buildings. It's uh, here in the U.S. they call it airless sprayers. The, the painters use them down, down in South America. They were almost unknown. Hmm. So so when you look at all of the marketing materials that exist in the U.S. for companies that make those machines, there's a company Titan, Graco, a bunch of them. All of their marketing and their, their materials are to people who already know what the equipment is, probably have one. And they're looking to replace, upgrade, or otherwise.
1: Mm.
2: In South America, you would talk to painters and they would tell you, we don't need gar- stuff's garbage, it's unnecessary, labor's so cheap. Why, why would we want to automate this? It's it's more expensive, it's something it's gonna they had all of these negative ideas. They'd never seen the product operate. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a replacement market, it was where the painting companies were 30, whatever years before when the when the technology first came to market. So we ended up having to prove to the painters that there was a true advantage and there really was instead of having 10 guys that would go out and have a few beers at lunch you had equipment that didn't get drunk (laughs) you you had equipment that that could really do the work better with using less paint without waste with less people and more efficiently and and so when you would have 10 guys working for a week you could have two guys in two days do the same job So so you'd be able to sell more deals and and do more production. Then at the paint level, which is where where we innovated, what would happen if the paint manufacturers recognized that if a guy owned that equipment, he's going to use more paint. Mm -hmm. So helping that guy get his equipment, get trained on the equipment and know how to do a better job with your paint with it meant you're going to sell more paint. And we were able to create this alliance with the paint companies to create training courses, get people going. And it all happened because when everybody told us the equipment was garbage, I found a painter who was willing to listen to me, and yeah. we we got him to take on a job. There was a, a there's a supermarket chain called Caifour. It's a Portuguese company. I think they're now the biggest in South America. I'm, I could be wrong with that. Well, when they build, they have this huge block wall that surrounds the parking lot for security. And the contract, if I this is a long time ago, so I, my my numbers are probably off. Someone will later correct me and tell me how, how wrong I was. But the idea was that a crew of 10 was going to be able to paint the wall in seven days with a primer, two coats of paint. Um, and we put up the challenge with two workers to get it done in three days. Mm. And and we got the media involved and they were going to come out and see this, this strange, almost like in the days of the railroad, can a, can a stagecoach stagecoach beat a train? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that in the history. So yeah. yeah. So so we set this up and we got the media out and we put the equipment on a wagon so it could be wheeled. We trained two guys prior and we let them go. The first day they had the entire wall primed inside and out by lunch. It dried while they were having their lunch and they put the first coat of paint in the morning. They came, put the second coat of paint and we were done. And the paint company stood up and went, holy crap, this is an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And we were able to go from almost no sales in 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 the region to significant sales. I think by by the end of year one, it was like 1.2 million in sales of equipment. I mean, zero to wow. Yeah. Um, so the, it's a, a one of I don't know 50, 70 projects over the years that we've done in in that realm. That was more of a dog and pony show, but
1: yeah. Well, you it's it, you you mentioned that you you're in uh, over you know 120. 120- countries now I yep, think yeah um, obviously you you brought a, a great example there of how uh, the markets in different countries can be so different from one another Absolutely. just in the matter um, tell me a little bit about working internationally like that and how uh, I guess how do you do you have to approach the market differently in every area how do you yep. how do you kind of approach everybody with what you you're doing
2: well think think about just in the United States so i'm I'm gonna be selling a piece of equipment, a car, whatever in the Bayou of Louisiana or Boston. Think about the cultural differences between the language, what's important, what's different. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can sell a lot more you know, cra- cra- crayfish cookers in the Bayou than you can in say, uh, Detroit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know it's it, so when you when you start to go global, those di- those differences become even larger. Yeah. So the very thing that would make a product sell beautifully in the United States, the marketing strategies, all of the things behind it, much like we talked about replacement market as opposed to new market, applies in every country. So uh, an example that I use all the time in conversation is the sofa market, the the upholstered furniture. In the U.S., if you're buying a very expensive sofa, you want to know all the components inside. You want to know how many ways the springs were hand-tied. Uh, the type, all of that stuff. When we took those types of marketing materials to South America, they were like, well, what the hell is all this stuff? Nobody cares what's inside the sofa. Mm-hmm. They want to know that they can brag that it was American-made hand craftsmanship. They want it to look good and they're going to test it with their butt. If the butt hits it and the butt likes it, the butt buys it. <laughs> and that was, so if you brought all of these wonderful materials that make sales happen in the US down there, nothing would happen. Now, the same concept, we're going to take upholstered furniture to Japan American sofas can't sell in Japan as they are because the footprint won't fit in their homes. So if you're going to uh, if you're going to go into a Japanese market you have to adapt what you make. And by the way that overstuffed furniture we love here also doesn't work in the small apartments in in Latin America. Mm. So you you have to have someone on the ground in that country who speaks the language and speaks the language of marketing and knows how to do qualitative studies within that market and is the right partner with the same aligned ethics, you have to understand their culture, but more so they have to understand because they'll always know their country better than you will. Yeah.
1: What are some of the, um, I guess, biggest lessons that you've learned that impact how you lead the company now over the the years?
2: Never, ever accept a, a person you're working with in another country based on convenience. I tell the story all the time. If you you go to a trade show and there's a certain region of the world, not I don't want to be derogatory to anybody, but you'll be at your table at a booth at a trade show, and a guy will come up and he'll hand you his business card and he'll say, Hi, I am the number one distributor of this product in all of my country. You'll never meet anyone who has more impact. Everybody knows me. You go, wow, I just met the biggest guy in the country. And he walks away, and a guy who looks just like him comes up to you, wearing a red shirt instead of a blue shirt, and he says, I'm the number one guy in the country. And as the day goes by, you will meet eight number ones, which (laughs) is mathematically brilliant because in the US, you can't have eight number ones. in there you can. (laughs) So so at the end of the day, you have to have the the ability to evaluate and understand whether or not that person you're accepting to work with in that country is because they happen to be convenient because you met them and they sound like a good guy, or do you still need to dig deeper? Do you yeah. say no to a sale because the guy you're selling to could be a dead end, mm. and and it's it it's one of the most overlooked things in in, in international trade. Um, you know, you'll, you'll find story after story. Well, we why why aren't you selling in that country? Well, we partnered with X, and he was supposed to be the biggest guy in the country, and he bought samples, never sold anything else, but he registered our name, and he's our exclusive, and the legal fees to get rid of him are too high, mm. so we just don't do business there. And, yeah, and, and it can be traumatic for folks who don't know what they're doing.
1: So, what has been the what has been the hardest thing about your entrepreneurial journey? <laughs> when
2: when I came back to the states in '93, I mean, sorry, after being down there for ten years it was 2003, and the market crashed, I ended up going back to actually being an employee of a of a manufacturing company and mm-hmm. ran their international division and the hardest thing was three hundred thousand air miles 45 countries a year visiting uh losing any sense of what time of day it was i mean I, when i quit that after five years i was so exhausted that I, I i didn't have an internal clock for for a very long time i weighed 365 pounds could barely walk up a flight of stairs um and and needed to make a life choice that was the most difficult point of, of all of the work that I've done, although I learned a great deal doing it.
1: Yeah. How did, you, how did you move past that?
2: I quit and <laughs> moved on to something where I could stabilize and not travel as much and focus on my health and take everything that I learned and I funneled it into, into more of a business development role while I was recovering. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, have there been any keys or could you give any advice to somebody who, who maybe is at that point where they feel like they've just... They've overdone it. They've burned out. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you had failed at some point? And if so, no. like, how did you, yeah. How did you move past that?
2: Yeah, I, I was, I was growing and, and continuing to do great things and earning money, but I recognized that my family and my health came first. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the best, the best part of the story is leaving that behind. I started to earn more than I ever did before. I got healthier, had better relationships because because I was able to prioritize better my time uh, and really was able to get into even more interesting, interesting things. And, you know, I, I don't look back at it as a negative because I now have a network all over the world. Mm-hmm. I've made some incredible friends. I can get advice from people that you wouldn't imagine um, and, and great memories and stories to tell. Um, some great, some not so great. But, you know, it was truly it was truly an adventure that I, I, I look back at and go, wow, that was that was great but yeah. I was done.
1: Sure. Well, you so you wouldn't necessarily say you have any regrets, but are there things that maybe you would advise someone who has that kind of schedule where they're in a different uh, city or country every so and uh, to, to some advice to them so that they don't get burned out? No,
2: because you're going to get burned out. Okay. <laughs> you're gonna. Yeah. And, you know, but, and I've never really met that many other people who burned the candle like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a few over the years and they've all had to make a life change because yeah. it's it's just too much. Um, you know, the ambition can, can, can blind you to to taking care of yourself. Yeah.
1: And so what, what uh, kind of life changes did you uh, t- do to, to change your life? <laughs> the joke, the
2: joke is I learned how to eat a donut, you know, instead of, <laughs> instead of donuts. I gotcha. I, I don't eat donuts. I, I changed completely the way that I eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and making sure that my sleep schedule stays normal that I, I keep track of what's going on um, I don't take on projects that that would take me beyond a normal working day I think I you know I, I encounter people all the time oh yeah I work 14 16 hours as if it's a badge of honor it's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. if 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 what you're doing can't be done in a normal working day it's probably because either you're not efficient or good at it or because you've taken on more than a human should and you need a team mm-hmm so the, a lot of a lot of that type of philosophical stuff that really really came to play. I started to get much more involved in my hobbies um, when I'm not working. Things that are are physical that I, I work with my hands rather than um, the constant thought process that goes into the strategic work that I do. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of things that you know you
1: you have to do to to balance life. Yeah, that's really good advice. What's um? What are you really excited about now for the future of Fangled?
2: Um, continuing everything that we're doing and really growing our innovation side of the business. We've got some really cool product launch concepts that we're bringing forward that are that are real game changers in in the market. Um, and those are the things that are the most exciting. Is you're you're pioneering new areas and doing things that people haven't done before.
1: Yeah. Before we before I let you go, I do want to give uh give you a chance to um, tell folks how to find you on the internet, your website, things like that. Find me. I'm I'm right here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. We're, I it's, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn under Andrew Deutsch. Uh, I'm, I'm the one that looks like me. There's a couple other ones. (laughs) Uh, we, our website is fangledtech.com T E C H fangled tech. Our podcast is the fangled cast. The best version of it is on YouTube. Although we're on all the, all the known criminals, a stitcher and, apple and all those places too uh and also we have a, an innovative course on how to be more present when you're in meetings using video technology called the virtual course.com you you saw me playing before changing backgrounds and having live video and all that kind of stuff on the screen that's all part of a training program that we teach people how to use open source software to be more present when they can't be in the room
1: that's fantastic awesome yeah. well I I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your journey and your experiences. I think it's going to help a lot of folks.
2: Great. I had a blast. It's great. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening to another episode of What Makes Them Tip, Innovations That Changed Everything. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to our show, What Makes Them Tip? Innovations That Changed Everything. If you're an entrepreneurial leader and you'd like to share the inspiration that changed everything in your business or venture, please visit Arkaleia.com slash guest and a small request. If you've liked this interview, please help us out by sharing this episode with a friend or on social with the hashtag Arcalea. You can also help us out right now by providing a review in your podcast player, and a thumbs up or rating review would help a ton. We promise to read every word and it helps us improve a little bit each day. And while you're at it, please also subscribe because every week you're going to be inspired and learn from other leaders in bite-sized increments. Again, my name is Mike Strada. Let's connect either on social or stay up to date on all things business at arcalea.com Thanks again for listening and thank you for being part of the over 99% of America's firms that make up the entrepreneurial community. Until next time.